Hello folks and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host Simon Ward. Each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your athletic performance. This week my guest is sports dietitian Dina Griffin who is joining us again and this time to talk specifically about race week and race day nutrition strategies. This podcast is a must for anyone approaching their A race in the next few weeks. And we'll talk mostly about full distance triathlon, but we also touch on some other day-long events like ultra marathons and long cycling sportives. We'll also be talking about shorter distance triathlons as well. Anyway, enough of that. Let's crack on and hear from Dina. Welcome back to the show, all the way from Boulder, Dina Griffin. Hi, Simon. It's great to be back with you. Well, lovely to see you as well, Dina. It's been, uh, what, how, how long do you think it is since we last spoke? Six months? Oh, shoot. It, yeah, I would say that's a good, yep, six months. Oh, heck, time's flying, so I have really no concept. <laughs> well, how, how have you been holding? Have <laughs> Six you been to hanging, 12. How have you been hanging on there in Boulder? We're doing well over here in Boulder, you know, in uh, our summer heat wave and getting our our races our race calendars jammed now again so everybody's excited for that but uh no complaints over here do do you feel like life has returned to normal or is almost back to normal now it's i wouldn't say it's 100 percent, you know with pandemic still still going on but it's it certainly seems light years different than just two three months ago yeah you you got all your vaccines now Yes, fully vaccinated, so we can be, you know, a little closer here on the screen. I'll I'll step in a little <laughs> bit. I've had both of mine as well. Oh, good! What so a we're, relief! We're, we're in a COVID-free zone here, aren't we? Yes. A big sort of like really stretched out five thousand mile COVID I know. balloon. Our distancing protocol is pretty decent right at the moment. I, th- I think so. Uh, well. Um, I'll refer back to our previous conversation at probably at times during the podcast, but today I specifically asked you on to help me out answering some of the questions that I get from athletes about what specific changes we should make to our nutrition when we're, when we're in the week before a race and also those specific considerations that we have for race morning and race day nutrition, because there's so much stuff out there and it gets the, the waters get more murky with every week going by, don't they, with all the latest research that's supposed to come out and different fads and, you know, people saying you don't need to race on carbs, you can do it on low carb, high fat and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought that what we could do is to try and create some sort of standardized template that people can start out with if they're unsure, and then they can perhaps do their own little experiments and find out what works for them. So um, are you okay with that? Sounds great. All right. Well, let's 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 start out. Let's imagine that we've got a race on a Sunday because that's when most of the races in the UK take part. Um, if you're listening and you've got a race on a Saturday, then everything just needs to be moved back one day. So we're going to start on race week. So, um, and I know that we're also going to talk, Dina, about the different types of races. You know, as triathletes, we could be doing a sprint. We could be doing a standard. We could be doing an Ironman. We might even be doing something that's longer than an Ironman. Um, and then we're going to come on to talking about some of the single sport events that are popular now, like gravel racing, um, swim run, ultra marathons and half. So 
But to start with, let's let's imagine that we are doing a an Iron Man. Okay, and then we'll sort of move around from there. So we've got an Iron Man next on um on the Sunday, and it's now Monday, so it's six days away. Do we need to start doing anything different with our nutrition on the Monday, or do we carry on as we have been? Okay, so yes, and I appreciate you putting some specifics around it. That's helpful to to make it a little bit more real and applicable in terms of um, context and everything. Uh, and I should just add the quick disclaimer that what you know I'm I'm saying and what my recommendations are uh, could be potentially different. Uh, you know, it's, it's coming from many years of experience and all the different kinds of athletes. So on a Monday with a Sunday race coming up nutritionally, I would vote for not changing much at all yet. And in fact, just focusing more on sleep and stress management and some of the other things. Mm. Um, so it's kind of like hang steady with fueling and, and, uh, keep to your your normal nutrition at that point. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean that, uh, and I totally appreciate what you say about you know th- um, the disclaimer there because I think everybody's different, and we we would we would both emphasise that ultimately you should be trying to work things out for yourself and find out what works for you. But of course, for those who are, those who are new to this, they've got to start somewhere, haven't they? So hopefully exactly. we can give, we can give them a starting point, and if and if they follow this advice, they won't go far wrong. And then they can sort of tweak things as they go along for future races. So if if you've got an Ironman coming up on the, uh, it's Monday now and you've got an Ironman coming up on the Sunday, we're not going to make any changes. So I guess that that advice would hold true for all of those other events we mentioned then that that are of a shorter distance and, and time. I would say so. Yes. I mean, at this point, the changes that you would make could potentially negatively affect performance. For example, if for some reason you get lured into um, lowering your carbohydrate intake or, you know, on the other hand, following some uh, other dietary trends like, oh, I, you know, I want to cut a couple pounds before race day. These things could actually work counter to what we may feel on race day. We could experience some other GI symptoms or it could just play with our head, you know, our mental strategies going in and, and affect confidence. So I think it's best overall just staying steady with, you know, your normal nutrition and if you're thinking of changing things around, let's wait until after the big day and then get to that. Yeah, quite frankly, if you get to seven days out from a big race and you think you need a couple of pounds losing, you, you perhaps need to have looked at your, <laughs> what you've been doing for the last few months, really. It's not it's not, it's not, not sensible, is it? Right. Um, well, you're talking about uh, dropping the carbs there. Um, a question that always comes up is carbo loading, right? Now, my understanding of carbo loading is it's a, uh, it's a protocol that was used more commonly maybe 20, 30 years back where athletes would train without eating any carbs. They'd try to completely use up all of the glycogen stores in their muscles so that they're feeling pretty ropey when they go out training. And then with a few days before the race, they would just load up on carbs and all of that would come flooding back into the muscles. But of course, the danger there is that you get that wrong and you end up on race morning still not fully fueled and feeling still ropey. Yep. 
That's right. I mean, I remember trying this about 20 years ago for mm. just, it was just a road marathon, but I was given that advice. This was before I was in the field of nutrition and sport nutrition. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I tried my best and uh, I. it's hard to load as much as what the classic recommendation is. So we've kind of moved away from that. I'll say most cases is just looking at maybe the 24 hour to 36 hour out if we're going to do that aggressive mm. carb loading strategy. Um, you know, it kind of needs to be determined in advance, well in advance. Like, is that needed? Can we just increase uh, maybe by a quarter, uh, 25% your carbohydrates at each meal and not shift the ratios of your macronutrients to be as dramatic as some of the classic carb loading recommendations. But here too, Simon, as you appreciate, it depends on the level of the athlete and that kind of race that we're looking at as to whether the carb loading makes sense or will it have that much effect on the performance outcome anyway? So there's a few, you know, flow charts that we kind of walk through <laughs> to mm. make that determination. It, it just feels like trying to do that old school things, got too many risks for getting it wrong that, that, um, to, to bother trying it. And I've always felt intuitively that if you, if you carry on eating the same portions of your macronutrients on your plate but you're reducing the training then there'll be a natural carbo loading that takes place anyway so you don't need to do anything different good point right because that week to two or maybe even two and a half three weeks again depending on the programming and in the kind of race we're looking at you're spot on that our our exercise ex energy expenditure from the training we've done has come down as a result of the taper. And so if we're eating normally um, or what we're used to, then, then the goal or the hope is that glycogen stores are fully repleted. We don't have to worry so much. Um, and then again, I, like I said, a little bit of extra carbohydrate um, can help for that race day performance, but it's not as high of a demand as what we used to prescribe 20, 25 years ago. All right. So Monday, we carry on. At what point in the week for our Sunday race are we going to start thinking about making adjustments to our, to our food intake? You know, so I usually see for Ironman athletes, maybe the earliest, Simon, would be uh, like Friday dinner, or that Friday mid meal, midday meal, perhaps like that would be the earliest that I see. Um, but typically, I'll say more often than not, it's just the day before, you know, the 24 hours before. However, you know, as I say that out loud, considering the individual sensitivities, right? So if we do have someone who has some gut issues, for example, we may. Uh, and just knowing some physiology aspects, you know, that two days out, if we're worried about some increase in GI distress or incidence of it, we may look at removing certain foods that could be um, problematic that couple days out, just because we know the food we eat can take up 
to about 72 hours to pass through the body. Um, so we just want to think maybe then on, you know, Thursday night, maybe not doing, you know, this kind of cuisine we've never had in our lives before that's extremely spicy or, you know, uh, going to a restaurant that has foods we've never experimented with before. That's, you know, being very conservative, um, very cautious to say like, don't eat out after Thursday or after Wednesday. But if it's an important race, then maybe that's worth that decision. Feels like we're moving towards a a strategy that I adopted from the advice from other long distance triathletes, which was to Friday was normally my rest day. And that was because usually when you went to a race, that was when you had to go and register, you'd go and schlepping around the, um, the expo, you know, so there probably wasn't much time for training. Uh, I used to like to do a little swim and a bike ride on the Saturday before the race. So it felt like, um, Friday was a good day to cut out fiber as well. That was another advice I got from one of the, the nutritionists that was working with British triathlon. We'll come back to that in a moment, but then load up on more white carbs, you know, the sorts of things we might not normally eat in, eating much of, but that are fairly generic and sort of benign, aren't they? They're not going to give you any problems. Um, fill up and then like you said that will that will pass through your system within the next 24 to 36 hours so that saturday you're not doing much either so you can just graze along on the food you, you wake up on sunday morning not feeling full and and sort of stuffed and uncomfortable um would, would that sound about the right sort of strategy as it is still a strategy whether or not we all need to abide by that i would mm-hmm. say I would say, eh, we have some different viewpoints. Um, I mean, you're pointing out something here that like, well, we always say don't do much new around race day. And now this advice, like suddenly switch your normal eating to be Mm. perhaps very low fiber and these um, refined carbohydrates. For some people that actually can, can cause a few um, bowel irregularities, like all of a sudden I'm a little constipated, for example, because mm. I don't have my normal fiber. Um, however, if we do determine that we, we need some extra carbohydrate or it's just going to be less of a worry or it's easier for traveling to a race, for example, putting in some of those more like the white rice or the you know, the bagel kind of thing or some cereals, that certainly helps because we don't want to undershoot the carbohydrate intake Mm -hmm. either for certain athletes. Um, So, you know, there's still a little conditional, uh, but I tend not to vote for this extreme switch uh, Mm -hmm. that you're mentioning. Uh, So again, it kind of depends too on that the distance of the race that we're looking at and the kind of athlete that we're looking at as well. Okay. So um, how does the distance um, play into that then? Because it, it, it seems to me from my own personal experience and, and that of listening to athletes that GI problems tend to occur more in the longer distance races when the body's under long, uh, is under more stress, more heat stress perhaps. And um, there's more stress coming just from filling your body th- from all of those sugary drinks and energy bars and gels. And it, it, it generally seems that the stomach distress happens uh, sort of starting from about an hour into the run on an Ironman. So um, 
are you saying that perhaps longer events we need to be more mindful of what we're eating and perhaps making those changes than we are if we're doing a standard distance triathlon or a you know a half marathon maybe except though then you have that intensity difference right for for a lot of us anyway maybe not the professionals uh so that is another consideration not just the duration of the event time-wise, but just the intensity, our intensity. So goal race intensity, thinking about that. Um, I mean, I think we have all scenarios here, so it's maybe not as helpful for a newer um, triathlete in this situation. Like, well, you kind of have to get to know your body. So hopefully you know a bit about what you should know (laughs) a bit about your own, uh, you know, predispositions gut wise or what your ability is, your targets for the race outcome and so forth. Um, So I think, I think we can have a little lower on the fiber to be a notch up on the safety factor in terms of less GI distress. Um, But again, dramatically changing or swapping out all of our carbohydrate sources may not be necessary, I guess is what I'm saying, uh, more than, than it's, you know, like a rule. So it's, it's, we, we kind of have a, a couple options. So it's, it's a little wishy-washy as I say it out loud, but. Yeah, and, um, I'm, and I'm, and I'm thinking, um, you know what you know what athletes are like they want a definite answer don't they they want binary yeah. they want black and white do this right. don't do that but what i'm what i feel like i'm picking up here is if you are going to reduce fiber then by all means think about doing that but maybe not completely cutting it out and if you're going to increase carbohydrates maybe think about a bit more white rice or cereals or some bagels yes. but, but not overloading on them so we're, we're talking about staying within the the mainstream middle path rather than going to the extremes aren't we if, if I think want, so and, that, Simon. And, that, and that's about as black and white as we can be yes and and just to say you know what we have an opportunity uh hopefully if we're hearing this advice uh sooner than later is to you know pick a key training weekend mm. A month out or two months out if we're able where we've got a long brick session you know it's a six hour day or whatever it's long for for you and go ahead and think a day out or a day and a half out and let's practice for race day which can mean let's change in this case you know let's change Saturday nutrition to do what we're aiming to do or thinking of doing for race weekend and then see how the the long training session feels mm. uh how does it work uh gut wise and and do we meet the goals of the session yeah and that's what that's what other races are for isn't it if you've got your key race here then we've got a and we've got b and c races and they're not just they're not just races where you blow your brains out and try to set personal best they're they're the ones where you experiment with things with nutrition with your kit with your pacing strategy so that by the time you get to this big race you you know what uh, approach you're going to have for the event for sure that's the the dream and the ideal is to have in this case yeah like a 70.3 race where we've yeah, it's, a, it's just like a great training day from all fronts, right? Mentally, nutritionally, hydration-wise, uh, and then just the, you know, the actual doing of this, the three sport. <laughs> of, we, we, we've been talking about Ironman here, um, 
and in the UK, of course, some of our listeners will be thinking, well, I'm not doing Ironman, I'm doing an outlaw. So for outlaw event, outlaw athletes, that's you as well. So we're talking about full distance. Does does the advice you've just given differ at all um, for those athletes who are doing shorter events like 70.3 through stand and down to sprint? I mean, the intake of calories uh, doesn't need to be excessive for the shorter races. I mean, I would argue even for, you know, the outlaw race, whether that's the full or, you know, a half distance, we don't have to, you know, overeat to prepare because of, like you mentioned in the beginning, the, the potential negative side effects from overeating or over anything. Uh, <laughs> so I think for shorter distances, it's still keeping in those days leading up as to the familiar foods, um, getting adequate rest, making sure hydration status wise that we're set up well, um, especially if it is in a more humid or hot climate. So you talk about hydration there. Is hydration something we need to be on top of a few days before we change our nutrition because it takes a few days more for the cells to be properly hydrated? You can't do that in the 24 hours before, can you, just by drinking five pints of five or six pints of water in that day? Yeah, the hydration aspect, right? It it does it, it, exactly what you're saying. We can't just jam it in last minute and expect to feel and be well hydrated. Um, just some of the cautions there is what does that mean to properly hydrate? So uh, like the five pints of water, gallons of water, what people think they need to drink to be adequately hydrated. We want to be careful that it's not over consumption of plain water in those few days leading up to it. So, uh, you know, we have other there are ways to monitor hydration status. Again, these are things ideally that we look at in training well in advance of race week. Um, so, you know, not wanting to over drink plain water, but still get in a variety of fluids. And we also get water from the kinds of foods we eat, perhaps, you know, your veg and fruit and um, those high watery kinds of foods, content foods. Um, but we also need the electrolyte component, specifically sodium, so that we're holding on to those fluids better going into mm. the race morning adequately or well hydrated. Yeah, that, that's something I've noticed. That if you if you just drink plain water, it seems to pass through you very quickly. If you have a little bit of sodium added, whether I mean I'm I'm comfortable these days with just squeezing a little bit of lemon juice into some water and adding some sea salt rather than buying some of those expensive hydration tablets. Uh, I mean, obviously those are convenient and you can carry them with you on the race, but if you're doing stuff at home, there is a, there is a cheaper uh, uh, option for you to use. And I found that I'm definitely, I'm more hydrated when I add a little bit of sodium. So is that, is that something we should be doing all the time or is that something we just need to be more mindful of in, in race week? I think all the time, Simon, you know, if we're training quite a bit, uh, again, that can be relative, but, and depending on the climate we live in, if you think about 
are fluid losses from sweat in training and the fatigue that we can feel from this level of chronic dehydration or underhydration state, uh, you know, that extra pinch of salt in our water or water bottles um, definitely can help that level of hydration just get prevent it from being, you know, compromised so that we can continue to train well leading up to the race. So I would say, you know, whether it is a homemade brew like yours, just the pinch of this added to the water and a little lemon juice or fruit juice or whatever it is to, you know, also make it palatable, that that is actually a great strategy. Okay. Now, you mentioned humid climates. Um, maybe not so much this year, although I guess in the US you'll be having athletes who are tra traveling from temperate climates to hotter climates to race and traveling across time zones. Um, but it's common in, in for, for athletes in the UK to go across to Europe and race in, and it and it probably going to be a lot hotter and more humid than, than they've been used to at home. And also they're traveling to um, they're traveling to destinations where the food, the the, the, cult, the the cultural food is different and the way it's prepared is different. So um, let, let's talk for a moment about what considerations athletes need to be um, thinking about when they're traveling. Um, you know, because also being on an airplane, if you're on an airplane for a long amount of time, you can get off. It's easy to get off dehydrated if you're drinking too much coffee with the recirculating air. So um, you need to think about that one as well, don't you? Yes. Hydration wise, that's a biggie. Uh, travel time, I mean, time zone changes that could affect sleep and your tendency or desire to eat or your meal times. Um, even just then, is it a different, um, like the food availability? Are we living out of a hotel and what, what foods are around us, restaurants or markets where we can get our own food? Do we have a little kitchenette where we can make our usual foods? Um, do we need to bring some goodies with us from home that we're used to our favorite, you know, porridge ingredients or whatever uh, snacks that we're used to that we may not be able to easily find just because it's not available mm. um, as well, or we just don't want to stress trying to find those foods. Um, but the hydration piece can be a biggie because a lot of us are just thinking of food, right? Like how, what am I going to eat? Where am I going to get that food and so forth? And we forget about the importance of the hydration element and how that actually can can hurt us in a sense. Um, just even digestion of the food that we're eating if we're not hydrating well and let alone then those other things we were just talking about with the travel, air travel specifically. So... Yeah, it's something to be on the radar uh, and a high priority. Yeah, I, I've known athletes Google the restaurants that they can, you know, where they can or the or the shops, you know, if they're staying in a hotel, they'll they'll look to see if there's a Whole Foods nearby or somewhere where they can get the food that they want. Um, if they find a, a restaurant that serves a particular food, they might they might even just eat there all the time rather than eating in the hotel. And and I've I've known elite athletes just travel with their own food because yeah, I mean, maybe it's maybe it's superstition. Maybe it's maybe they're just being a little paranoid. But 
you know, that you definitely don't want to, to have a bad stomach derail your race. And so if you take the food that you have at home with you and make it there, then um, they feel that that's just one box ticked that they don't need to worry about. Right. I love it. And I recommend that often too. It saves some stress, right? In that decision time <laughs> that we need to go seek out our our usual foods. So if we can help ourselves by being prepared, just like we're packing extra socks or whatever you can think of, like why not bring some some of your own extra food and your you know, bringing your extra water bottles and so forth. So it just helps being prepared and and keeping those negative, potential negatives lessened. Let's talk about some of those other events, Dina. Um, triathlons, triathlons unique in that the, the biggest feeding opportunities on the bike when your stomach's fairly stable because you're not jogging around so you can you can consume stuff. You've got the opportunity to chew things so you can eat more solid food. Um, but then the, the the stomach issues seem to happen on the run when everything starts getting jiggled around and all of that stuff you've put in just starts fermenting and mixing. And of course, chewing and swallowing is just a little bit more difficult. But um, long distance swimming, there's, there's some unique nutrition considerations for during the race, which will be down to the race rules and probably liquids and, you know, the feeding opportunities. But what about, what about leading up to the race? Uh, would you, would you make any, would you make any changes to um, your nutrition for a gravel race on a bike or a sportive or um, a long distance swim? And you're talking about leading up yeah. to, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't generally, change all that much with respect to the other sports unless you know the the fluid thing that we're talking about if it is and and again this really isn't that unique from triathlon it's just looking at the conditions in which we will be racing mm -hmm. and maybe doing some purposeful sodium loading uh to go into that race uh with you know even more increased plasma volume and so forth. So that, that would apply to gravel racing, um, maybe not too much to the swimming, long distance swimming, but some of those other land-based sport uh, that could be occurring, especially like desert type environment, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, high higher altitudes, that kind of stuff. So the long distance swimming, uh, you know, I've I've only worked with a couple open water swimmers that that were in that category, and and we didn't change a whole lot leading up. Um, you know, so I I can imagine being some circumstances where we may need to increase feeding going in, just knowing that there may not be that many opportunities for feeding. Okay. And, and of course, a lot, a lot will depend on the intensity of the race. If you're doing a gravel race that's flat, your feeding strategy on the day is going to be different to one where you're doing lots of short, sharp hills and dropping into that glycogen zone, won't it? So there's, there's, there's definitely, um, we'll talk about this for, for race day nutrition, but of course, before you get to race day, you've got to prepare and make sure you've got the food there. So you, you, you need to, um, you need to look at the course, you need to look at the course demands, you need to look at the, the climate and all of those other things in advance. And if you're traveling to a foreign country, then you're probably going to have to do that a month or two beforehand because, you know, you're going to need to, if going back to our previous conversation, you're going to need to take that stuff with you. Exactly. The planning element. And, you know, we should acknowledge, Simon, the 
a lot of the current sport nutrition guidelines for leading for carbohydrate intake leading up to these kinds of events, uh, the recommendations are, I'll say, relatively high. Uh, it's just that if we look at the studies in which those recommendations are from which those recommendations were formed, it it just doesn't apply to all of us from my perspective, right? And a lot of it is not considering things like the logistics of the race day itself or the actual athletic ability of the individual. Um, so I know there are a lot of athletes that just Google, you know, what, how much should I be eating? Like, oh no, but that maybe doesn't apply to you. So it's just a little caution for the Googling people <laughs> <laughs> who maybe don't consult with their coach or sport dietitian in advance that, it, these are things we've got to work out well in advance to figure out what's best. Yeah, I've just never been able to manage 60 grams of carbs per hour, you know, and I know athletes will go, right, well, I'm racing for 10 hours and I can't get anything on the swim and I'm not going to, be able to get as much on the run. So that means I need to get 600 grams of carbohydrates on the bike. So that's an awful lot of carbohydrates when you're taking in sports drinks that are sugary and sweet. And uh, man, I've just, I think on three quarters of my Ironman races, I've thrown up um, a few miles into the run. And that's just because that concoction's just getting churned around. And, uh, you know, it was too, it was, it was too concentrated. So in actual, in actual fact, the one race where I did try to consume less, I decided that I would just go at a slower speed, but you know what? I didn't have to keep stopping to go to the port or to throw up. So I was actually, right. actually had a better race. So you, 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 um, I suppose you need that experience to make that decision, don't you? Yes. Yep. And yes, we often learn from uh, <laughs> what goes wrong, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, I've been there myself and it was something similar, which maybe we'll talk about here in a second as well Is just in training, I didn't do what I ended up doing on race day. Again, this was, this was years and years ago. Uh, so my race day nutrition was, very concentrated carbohydrate in a small flask because mm -hmm. I just didn't want to carry all my stuff, you know, like three bottles. So I put it all in one bottle and um, I was supplementing with other carbohydrates. So the intake met guidelines at the time, but it was, it, I hadn't trained my gut to take that. Maybe it wasn't proper to begin with, you know, and at some point into that marathon, it just stopped processing or stopped absorbing efficiently. And that resulting gut distress then slowed me way down and made me very upset. <laughs> so that's another interesting point that we perhaps need to take into consideration, which occurs before race week is what. As an individual, what am I going to use for nutrition on race day? So most races publish well in advance the nutrition they're going to have available on the course. And um, a lot of the times you can order some of that and decide whether you like it and whether you're going to go with that. But even if you do, I still think that there's no guarantee that the 
that the drinks have been mixed up to the right percentages by volunteers who perhaps uh, are from the local football club or something or the local uh, women's institute or the local yacht club that have decided to help out doing an aid station and, and somebody's just said right here's all these sachets of energy drink here's a big bucket of water mix everything in there and put it into water bottles so um uh, they might they may run out of the energy bars you want or the energy gels. So I'm I'm I would always prefer that athletes are self sufficient where they can be and then just take water from those feed stations and and then you obviously you have to work out how that's going to happen. So again pre pre course knowledge, um, but but we would you would recommend a couple of months of training and 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 judging by what you're saying at least one or two hard long sessions or long days where you're trying out this nutrition to make sure it, you are comfortable with it. Cause, cause there's a difference between a two hour ride, isn't there? And a six hour ride followed by a one hour run. Exactly. I'm on the same page with, as you, Simon, just like self-sufficiency. Uh, I mean, I know it can be, or seem like a pain to, to carry some of this stuff. And of course we do have to consider uh, the kind of sport, you know, and our own skills and, you know, what it is we're wearing to transport or hold these um, foods or fluids. Um, But yes, that is certainly important is to figure out what you will rely on from the event or the race or what you will be carrying. But I'm certainly with you in terms of being more um, prepared because what if, right? They, run out of your favorite product that you have been testing. Um, So why not just bring that stuff with you? You have, you can cruise through that aid station, perhaps uh, just much more quickly, gives you peace of mind. You can stay on track better. Um, And like you're saying, just if we can just use, use the aid stations for uh, fluid replacement or water replacement, uh, that's great. But then having a backup plan, if we drop our own nutrition, for example, what is it we can take from aid that we feel good about? Well, last last week's race, so the first outlaw event of the season, um, the there were a few speed bumps exiting the venue. And I've seen reports from lots of people saying, I can't believe the number of gels and water bottles and energy bars that were scattered around the place. So there were going to be some um, there were going to be some athletes that were very disappointed there with their nutrition just because it all bounced out as they went over those speed bumps at high speed. So, uh, and that's another thing that we should perhaps emphasize here is you may well have got this super duper nutrition holding system, these rear mounted cages on your bike, you know, this little, this little place where you can store all your energy bars, but you need to perhaps subject it to a bit of race day stress to make sure that it's all going to stay in there. Um, it's a perennial problem. I've, I've, you know, I had friends 20 years ago that lost all their energy the first mile of the bike and, and struggled oh, yeah. to uh, st- struggle to, to get around. Right. So we either need to pack some extra in another little nook <laughs> or, or yes, now plan B is what do you do after that? But ideally it's figuring that stuff out and the robustness in advance. So yes, if we have to you know, include uh, some speed bumps <laughs> or rough terrain to uh, just mm. see how well our nutrition's staying uh, held in. That's great. One thing I wanted to mention or add to what you just said a minute ago, Simon, is the practicing piece. 
is making sure we're simulating at goal race intensity. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's often forgotten by athletes, especially we're not known by newer athletes is you can have a very amazing plan for fluids and, and fueling. But if you're practicing it at a much different intensity than you aim to race at, we can't well, you know, simulate how the gut responds or Mm. some of those other nuances. Uh, So that's really important to think about. I'll I'll give you some funny, well, a couple of funny examples, Dina. Um, As a commentator, I get to walk around the transition. So we're at one of the outlaw events and there's all sorts of uh, nutrition transportation ways that people have found um, a couple of people had, had 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 some bagels, but they'd what they'd done was that the bagels with the hole in the middle, they'd looped them over the end of the energy uh, uh, over their aero bars. So the aero bars are open, so it's like two spikes, and they've oh got two gosh. bagels on each, which is a fantastic, um, a fantastic just way of thinking. Except the bit that they missed out were while they were swimming, the crows had spotted them as well, <laughs> and so. When we were looking around, this bike had it started out with four full bagels. It had it had half a bagel left on the handlebars, and the rest was just crumbs around that underneath the front the front wheel hilarious. of the bike. Yeah, um, there were there were other, and, and I can tell you, I've mentioned this a couple of times on uh, on, on podcast previously. Um, many years ago, one of my first half Ironmans, I'd seen in Triathlete magazine how people would get power bars, and they would cut them into chunks. Yeah, they take them out of the wrapper, cut them into into four, and then it would fold the power bar mm-hmm. over the top tube of the bike, right? And then, of course, you don't have to you get you get disqualified for littering now. You didn't then, but of course, it's still you know uh, a, a little unethical to be dumping your litter in the countryside. So no litter to worry about. Straight power bar, peel it off, and straight into your mouth. What a fantastic theory! Um, except as I came to. Uh, um, 10 miles into the ride on a, on a warm day. So the power bars, as you know, can be rock hard or they can be sticky. I started to peel off this power bar and up it came with the paint off the top tube. Oh so my that gosh. Had, had to go into the, <laughs> into the verge, the grass verge. So, right, that's fine. I've got 10 pieces of power bar here. I'll peel off the next one. Now nope, that's got paint on it and the next one and the next one. So by the time I'd got to the uh, end of my power bars, I'd not eaten any because it all got paint on. And now my brand new, well, my few month old frame was completely destroyed because it got no no paint on the top tube. Oh, that, wow. That was a big oh. error. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but I wasn't so happy at the time. It cost no me about way. it cost me about 400 pounds to have the bike resprayed. Oh, my gosh, Simon. Well, it makes you wonder what what reaction, what chemical reaction happened to remove paint. You know, well, I, think it, the, I think, yeah, I think yeah, it was the obviously heat just too and sticky in the heat. Yeah, but um, maybe the maybe the sugars. But uh, anyway, maybe 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 wow. it wasn't. I don't know. Anyway, it's a funny story now. But things that you think that are great in the in the comfort of your own home, you need to practice them under stress, don't you? Yes. Bottom line. All right. One other thing: um, myth or reality? Caffeine leading up to race day. There's a lot of talk about how if you're a coffee drinker, that you should stop drinking caffeine two to three weeks out from your race. And then on race morning, you have a couple of cups of coffee and that supercharges you. Uh, I mean, we know that caffeine has some performance enhancement and, uh, and, and that's been well documented. But does it work in the way that I've just described? 
Yeah, it used to be more reality, but I think now we've moved that over into to the, I guess, myth category. Just the evidence is mixed that that benefit to do the withdrawal period uh, clearance, you know, and then reintrodu- reintroduction um, mixed outcomes in terms of performance mm. is what my understanding is. Do you, do you have different understanding of that, Simon? Well, I like coffee. I like to have a morning coffee. Yeah. I, I know that coffee helps me to uh, get get going on my morning, you know, my morning bathroom visits. Exactly. Um, I do wonder where if you stopped drinking caffeine and then you suddenly started it again on the morning of the race, that might just add a bit more, um, a bit more stomach distress when you're already feeling a bit nervous. Mm-hmm. Um I also wonder if if you get, I mean, we also know that there are people who get these hits from caffeine and others that don't. They're the ones that can drink an espresso before they go to bed. So if, if you're one of those people that doesn't really, um, has the gene that doesn't really get affected by caffeine, then stopping stopping before a race isn't going to be of any help. And if That's you are right. one of those people that, that gets that caffeine hit, then I wonder how miserable you are going to be for the two or three weeks before the race if you stop. I think that's some of what confounds the whole story here with that. Uh, withdrawal approach is, yeah, are we a slow or fast metabolizer? How habitual is our caffeine intake? And to what degree is our caffeine intake? What are the negatives from that withdrawals? If it makes you grumpy, you know, the last few key training sessions you have stink because you're just like, you don't have your, you know, your little pep, bowels are messed up. Um, that some of that then makes that time frame leading up to when we finally get to reintroduce it. It's just not as effective. Mm. Um, so those are considerations. And then, you know, like just placebo effect from some of the studies um, or the mental part that we can't really measure, you know, is just like, I love the taste of my morning coffee and to not have it and then reintroduce it uh, perhaps then on race day, if I haven't had any other negatives, it's just this more welcome mentally, right? It's like, oh, yay, I get my coffee again. And that helps me mm. fr- from this other angle. Um, so I, I think bottom line is it's, we don't need, everyone does not need to do this withdrawal. Uh, the research isn't very conclusive as to its benefits. Yeah. Um so cost versus benefits and i mean i wonder how much how much performance enhancement you get from it anyway you know over over a t- i can see that on a short race it might do but over a 10 hour race where there are so many elements that are going to limit your performance is is caffeine going to really have that much difference over the whole day it might do on the start of your swim mm-hmm. um yeah i think that again comes back to uh timing of caffeine dosing, whether we are the fast or slow metabolizer and, you know, testing some of that in advance uh, if we can. Okay. So we're at race day now. We've done all the, we followed the advice from the Simon and Dina program and uh, we're waking up on race morning. We have a six o'clock start. Um, What time are we going to have breakfast? 6 a.m. So 6 a.m. start. Yeah. So I think uh, thinking of when when we wake up and how much time do we have 
in that window right before the race. So if we're waking up at 3.30 and maybe what we're talking about here will determine when you want to wake up, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about um, what it is we're going to eat volume-wise, composition-wise, uh, how much time we have to digest, how you are bowel-wise, what you need for time to get things, you know, our, our bathroom visits in and so forth. Um, I generally would, would advise like two to maybe three small feedings or light snacks. But the first meal might be the one that's the biggest, right? So if we are waking up, let's say at 3.30, and we can put a different timeline on this if you like, but, um, you know, uh, perhaps we're a little further away from the race start. So we've got to drive there, park, and, and all these other things get into transition, everything set up. Uh, so that first meal might be more hearty. Uh, it might be around two, two, three hours in advance of the race. Uh, then we might have another little top off. It, that could be an hour before. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about specific foods yet, so we can throw a few few examples around. Um, but generally, I would say, you know, for that very first feeding of the morning, which can be really hard when it's the wee hours of the morning, you know, we're not used, most of us aren't used to eating that much at 3.30 or 4 a.m. Um, but that gives us time for bathroom to, to get some of that food digested or hopefully, uh, you know, not sitting heavy in the stomach. And then a, a lighter snack or maybe two light snacks, depending on uh, anxiety, nerves, you know, what we can stomach. Uh, if it's fluid, that might work a little bit better, fluid calories. Um, so that's generally what I would say. But for those who wake up you know, they want to sleep as long as possible, that then there are cases where we might just have one lighter meal and get some fueling going on during the race. That That is a situation or a scenario I've seen before. So can we clarify this then? When, when we're feeding on race morning, we're not, we're not really loaded with carbs because we've done most of our eating the day before the race. We're really just topping up the liver glycogen that, that's been sort of used up overnight, aren't we? So we don't actually, even that first meal, it doesn't need to be a large quantity. I would say for the most part, however, Simon, there's a little bit here in the women's realm, women's fueling realm. So in for our menstruating women in the higher hormone phase, we've seen where uh, that carbo loading, which might not really be the classic carbo loading, but the day before nutrition, I'll say. Mm -hmm. uh, it's women in that higher hormone phase may not take up those carbohydrates as well. Okay. So the morning nutrition in that phase actually can come in handy better, especially if we are racing at a, you know, pretty high intensity. Mm -hmm. uh, so that might be an exception here or just not an exception, but just one thing to think about for the women athletes. 
Okay. Um, any guidance on what we should be eating around this time? I mean, I've I've always thought something like a bagel or some white toast with honey or jam, and and and, and my first and my first little coffee of the day. Is that your fave? Uh, yeah, that's something that I find yeah. is palatable, sits comfortably in the stomach. Yeah, is easy, that what you, right? Yeah, yeah, something easy like that. I well, I you know what? I usually vote for adding a little bit of protein in. Just, okay, yeah, you know, not gobs, and I'm not talking like a pound of bacon either. That's very fatty. I just a little bit of proteins, which could be, you know, a little almond butter on the toast with the honey, for example, mm. uh, or maybe it's, it's drinkable protein just to get some of that into the system and, and maybe let that carbohydrate stick a little longer, but not yet feel too heavy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I usually recommend a touch of protein somewhere. Do you prefer almond butter to peanut butter? No, not necessarily. Mm-mm. I found some good peanut butter recently. Doesn't have any palm oil. When you when you open the tub, oil the oil comes to the top. It's just just peanuts. It's fantastic. Oh, yum! Yeah, no, oh. no added, no added anything. Yes, I think crunchy peanut butter is the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, uh, again, uh, triathletes being triathletes are going to want to know how many grams am I going to be consuming you know, 100, 150 mm. grams on race is morning this, of is carbohydrates. This pre, pre-race? Yeah. Oh, yeah. heck. I'd say that's quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the classic guidelines, it's anywhere from one to four grams of carbohydrate in the one to four hours prior to race. But that's a huge range. One to four grams per kilo of body weight. Per, per kilo body weight. Sorry. Right. Yep. So, uh, you know, that, that, fourfold difference in in amount mm. so yeah it could be well over 100 grams but i can tell you for a lot of people that's too much food it's hard to get that in i'd i'd, su- I'd suggest that for those people who don't know what 200 grams of carbohydrates is to just go and get get some slices of bread or a couple of bagels or a big bowl of cereal and actually see it for themselves you'll be quite shocked at how much food that is Yes. So that's why I do vote for, I mean, you know, we can look at those recommendations and consider them and they may or may not be appropriate. But if we are going to do, uh, let's say 50 or 80 grams of carbohydrate, just to pick a range, you know, let's do two light feedings, light just meaning not tons of bacon or cheese and very heavy fatty foods, um, but still include a little bit of protein and just, you know, a couple hours out, maybe 30 grams, an hour out, maybe another 20 grams. But it's it's changing, right? This just uh, kind of alluding to the changes in sports nutrition approaches and the individual, uh, you know, flexibility. It's not a one-size-fits-all, which I'm sure has been said a million times. When we get to our race, um, there are all sorts of options, right? So the first thing I'd like to clear up is I hear a lot of people saying, well, I'm going to have a cheese and pickle sandwich or I'm going to have a cheese and ham sandwich. I prefer real food or I'm going to eat a pork pie. Right. Yeah. Or I'm going to have a steak and kidney pie. I'm going to have a Snickers bar because I like that. Um, In my mind, and you you might completely blow this out of the water. The reason that sports nutrition has been, you know, I know there's a marketing element to this, but it's it's the 
it's the way in which the food is produced that's most easily and efficiently delivered to the to the to the gut through the gut and into the bloodstream for it to be used and if you're eating real food um as nice as that might be and as much of a change as it might be it just takes so much longer to digest that you could be you know you just could be setting yourself up with other problems um but i'm happy to hear your guidance on this yeah i mean i we need to think about what is our own need for carbohydrate uh, what is the intensity we're racing at to determine maybe the food form or fueling form? Of course, considering our own gut tolerance issues and heat stress or other things, you know, the self-sufficiency piece versus relying on aid. So all of these elements determine mm. whether we can choose more of those whole foods for fueling um, versus the more engineered products. So am I right in thinking then if you're if you're an athlete that's going to be racing an Ironman and you perhaps it's going to take you 14 to 15 hours, your pace is your pace and therefore your intensity as a as a percentage of your maximum is probably going to be a lot slower. And therefore there's less stress on your stomach and you could probably you could probably um, digest those real foods. But if you're an athlete that's aiming for nine, 10 hours, you're definitely going to be wanting to take the more engineered sports nutrition on because that's the fastest delivery method. Yes. Okay. So when we, when we see these questions appearing on a forum about what should I have on race day and somebody said, I always have cheese and pickle sandwiches. What we should be doing is asking the question, what type of racing are you doing in order to form an opinion on whether that's right for us? That's a, a, definite consideration and a very high priority to think about. But I mean, we also consider uh, food, just the palatability and your own desire to eat the cheese and pickle sandwich when it's very warm out or, mm. you know, you're, you're running, you're probably not going to be eating that kind of thing. Maybe if you're walking more than running, you could tolerate a cheese and pickle sandwich or any kind of sandwich for that matter. Um, but just thinking too of just the basics, like the protein and the fat contribution to mm -hmm. whatever source or um, composition that we decide to eat, that will slow down the availability of the carbohydrate that that we really want to get more of. Um, so if, if we don't have specific time goals, you know, we don't have much GI distress history or predisposition, we can throw in those kinds of, uh, you know, more of the real food, meaning mixed food mm. uh, with, with the protein and fat elements to it. And we might be just fine. But again, we have to practice this stuff way in advance. If, if you are going to have solids and it doesn't matter whether it's uh, the sandwich that we just discussed or whether you're eating an energy bar, do you think that those types of food are better eaten during the early part of the bike to give them more time to digest than just before you get off the bike when they're, they're still going to be in a solid format when you when you start running around? For sure, especially when we're talking about the you know, 70.3 or half distance and full distance mm -hmm. um, triathlon or Ironman or outlaw races, just those solid foods can work beautifully 
at T1, early on the bike, maybe we then transition to lighter, more semi-solid or liquid nutrition for the last, it could be, you know, the last hour. If you want to think time-wise, it could be the last um, 25%, you know, of the bike. So you just give your system time to transition for the run. What do you think about um, using caffeine gels as a little boost, maybe halfway through the bike or maybe just before you get off the bike to give you that little boost as you start the run. Is there any merit in that? Well, I mean, you're putting two things together, the caffeine and the gel. I would say the caffeine can work quite well for for a lot of athletes. Um, again, it'll depend on uh, amount of caffeine and if we've been trickling in caffeine the whole time, we may not feel much from doing it again. So caffeine can be timed and dosed to, to work to our favor uh, for a little bit of a boost or else just kind of taking some of that fatigue and central nervous system fatigue down. Um, whether or not to do the gel might depend then on gut tolerance, the kind of gel what we've eaten prior, how hydrated we are as to, as to whether that makes the most sense. Okay. Now uh, you mentioned protein there. There are certain sports drink and sports nutrition manufacturers that have combinations of carbohydrate and protein that they say is the best combination for race day. I'm, I'm clear in my mind that protein and carbs is great to, to act as a trans, you know, protein is a great transporter to get more carbohydrates into the body and maybe as a recovery food. I'm, I've never been entirely certain about the benefit of protein during a race. Um, your opinion on that? So I think protein can help if we are going to be out there racing for a long time. So like you said, the 14, 15 hour plus times or for our ultra runners, gravel riders that are doing very long events time-wise. Little, again, though, it's not necessarily doing pure protein like eating a chicken breast, Um, but it might be, you know, it could be five to eight grams of protein in an easily digestible format uh, on the hour, every couple hours, just for getting a little bit of satiety. Um, maybe we like it flavor-wise, taste-wise. Mm-hmm. Maybe it just works better for our fueling strategy overall. But again, it's not necessarily contributing to performance directly unless it's helping um, just staying on a fueling plan period. Uh, You know, there's some talk of keeping our blood levels of amino acids up Mm -hmm. for longer events. So there's something to be said for that to help with fatigue, um, nervous system fatigue. Uh, You know, that we don't have ton of solid evidence around that. So it's, I wouldn't say it's hundred percent. All of us should be having protein or amino acids during, during all races. Mm. Uh, so I don't, yeah, I'd say it's, I'd say it's not a high priority, but it may 
come in handy. The satiety thing there is, I guess, then if you're eating something solid that's got protein in it that you can munch on, that's going to just help your stomach feel a little full because there is a difference, isn't there, between being underfueled and being hungry. And you can be you can be fueling because the the, the liquids and the gels are, are getting digested and straight into your bloodstream and used. So your stomach can feel empty, but you, you're still not hitting the wall. And, and, and that's, a, I think, for some people, that's a significant thing to overcome because they think, right, well, I've, my gut's rumbling and I feel really hungry, but they're not, they're not dropping the pace. That's right. So, yeah, some of those bars, for example, will have, let's say, 30 grams of carbohydrate and maybe five or six grams of protein. But it, so that little bit of protein and maybe there's a touch of fat from nuts, for example, or some seeds that are um, pureed into the bar format. And that can just be if we're spreading that bar out, you know, where it's not overloading the gut. Uh, but it just feel like it sits just right. And it's not like a gel where it works for, you know, 12 minutes. <laughs> and yeah. then we feel like we need more, something more. I, I think if I was going to try and get some protein in, it would definitely have to be uh, something that had a savory element to it, just, just to sort of offset the continuous assault of the sugar sensations on your gut. Yes. Yep. Maybe a, a bit, bit of, of, maybe a last bit of cheddar cheese or something to munch on. Oh, yeah. There are many options, right? Even the bacon that I mentioned, I know ah, in the past. Beef, beef jerky. Yes. Little little bits of that. Salty, yeah. little protein, little fat. Mm. Breaks up the sugar train and everything. So, mm-hmm. mm. Oh, well, that's, that's interesting then. Um, I've heard talk of the different types of sugars, sucrose, fructose, glucose, and that some are better combinations than others for um, – nutrition on race day Uh can you you clarify well we have to think about how much carbohydrate we aim to take in on let's just say an hourly basis so this goes back to we have like the classic sports nutrition guidelines that may advocate like for Ironman you know the or outlaw the full triathlon distance as we know it um for the single day triathlon, uh, the recommendations will say upwards of about 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour, which in calories is about yeah. th- 360 calories. Yeah. Um, if we're going to push that limit, Simon, where we're going to be aggressive, or maybe we do 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour, in that scenario, we do want to get a mix and it's generally said two to one of glucose to fructose just so that we can absorb efficiently that amount of carbohydrate uh so you know that might look like 60 sorry did you you say glucose fructose yes right two two to one ratio so that might be you know in the range of 50 to 70 grams of glucose or 60 grams of glucose is usually where, you know, from the research that it's kind of topped out uh, that we could absorb unless we've trained the gut well in advance to tolerate higher amounts. And then the remaining coming mostly from fructose. Uh, So that's where we have to look if we're buying, you know, our engineered sports nutrition, we really have to look at what's in it, Uh, not just the label that says carb amount, and do three of these an hour, we need to look at the composition of those carbohydrates. Mm. 
Yeah, so uh, I think there was a bit of uh, there was a bit of chatter around Kipchoge's two-hour marathon record. You know, the the sort of manufactured marathon record that he did, and how much carbohydrate he was consuming there. But he'd had, he'd had to practice to be able to get to tolerate that amount per hour, hadn't he? And to be able to That's utilize right. it. That's yeah. right. But, okay. You know, for those of us who aren't consuming nearly that amount, maybe we're in the 40 gram carb or we're doing mixed calorie sources with a little bit of protein, a little bit of fat. Uh, you know, if we're in that, let's say 30 to 50 grams of carb per hour. And if we're a little more robust GI wise, you know, not having gut bombs all the time, um, then then we have a little more flexibility in in the worry of the carbohydrate source. Uh, I would say, generally speaking, there's there's more flexibility for our options. Mm. We, we've talked a little bit about GI distress, um, and we've talked about preparing ourselves by trying the food that we want to use on race day, and um, by doing it under race sort of simulated conditions. Are there any other causes of GI distress other than race day nutrition that, that we could do something about? I've heard people talk about leaky gut syndrome or, you know, there's sort of just just the condition that your microbiome's in that perhaps needs something more long term. Yeah, so you're right. GI distress may not just be from what we're consuming calorie wise. Um, for example, for racing in heat high heat, you know, temperature conditions, or there's a lot of heat stress on the body, uh, the intensity that we're racing at, that can cause a very um, tricky uh, situation for the intestinal lining. And so that can affect like this leaky gut that you're referring to. We can get some bacteria coming into the into the system that can affect how we feel that can be nausea or some other kinds of side effects um, GI wise. So environmental condition can certainly um, contribute to the onset of GI distress. Um, hydration as well. I know we haven't talked too much about that, but we have mentioned that a few times it's important. So if we're under hydrating or over hydrating, that can be problematic for some GI distress. So if we're under hydrating, we may not be absorbing very well the fueling calories that we're putting in mm. or those other kinds of calories we're consuming. Um, so it can kind of just sit heavy in the system, not absorb very well. Uh, of course, the overfueling, which, you, you know, there's there's a number of aspects there. Overfueling um, can be a problem. So it strikes me that if, if an athlete is training in temperate conditions, so I'm, I'm thinking about somebody in the UK now, and all of a sudden we have a heat wave and the race that they're doing is suddenly going to be in, you know, 25 degrees centigrade, and they've not been used to that or and and typically in the UK we get we get fairly high humidity as well not not like you get in places like Singapore and Hong Kong but still um, it's not a dry climate um, or if somebody's traveling abroad and they're going to warmer climates and they haven't been able to prepare in those hot conditions um, and they only turn up to the race within four or five days and they don't have time to acclimatize what steps can they take then to prepare themselves for um 
conditions on race day. You know, I'm, I mean, there's one thing about pacing and everything in the heat, but there's there's the other thing about um, this this absorption of nutrition and the and the the complications of heat distress. Yeah, I know. There's a couple ways we can think about it. Is um, if we're not adapted to those environmental conditions that we'll be racing in, we could we could almost assume we might be uh, slower or we just have to purposefully slow down and therefore our fueling strategy may need to be adjusted downward in a sense, but I don't mean no, you know, significantly, it's just lightening the load. Uh, so that lower intensity, uh, making sure we have some blood flow to the gut so that it can absorb uh, what we're putting into the body that can help. Um, we, I mean, if we know all of this in advance, we may need to just change the kinds of fueling calories as well. But I would say the hydration needs to come up to, you know, being on the radar uh, even more. Definitely was aware in Hawaii of uh, something my friend termed thermal load. Uh, it's basically when your core temperature goes up. So I know a lot of athletes um, they're probably already nervous anyway. The, the swim tends to be a bit more f- frenetic than normal. They come out and it's a bit like a, a, a you know a, a, an ITU race on the bike. And so they're, they're racing around Kona then before they go out onto the um, Queen K. And the heart rate's already quite high. And they're operating, to, they're operating to a power output. And they're at a power output that they trained at. But what they're not doing is noticing that the heart rate of that power output is maybe 20 beats per minute higher than it is. Um, back in the UK or back in Europe just because of the conditions and because the heart rate's going up that's reflective of what's happening within the body it's not because they're working harder it's because the the, the blood's trying to the heart's trying to pump blood around to the skin to cool you down your core temperature's going up and the thing I did learn from doing some heat um, from some stuff in the heat chamber is once your core temperature's at its critical level there's no way you can bring that down until you stop so even right. slow even slowing down just maintains it. And I, I can see this whole thing that Tim Noakes has done, you know, the central governor theory that, that the body's trying to protect you. So when you when you start getting headaches, when you start feeling dizzy, when you start throwing up or getting a, a stomach distress, I, I do wonder whether that's the body just saying, look, I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm give, I'm gonna throw the towel in here, I'm gonna make you feel ill. You can stop now. And then of course we right. ignore that. And so then the conditions get worse. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, we've all got we've all got these pre pre planned um, race goals, which which determine that we have to ride at a certain power or run at a certain pace. And, and the last thing we want to do is slow down um, to let our stomachs cope. But sometimes that's the only option, isn't it? Other than- when we get those signs, yes, yeah. yes. So, I mean, I think that also speaks to doing um, heat adaptation strategies Mm -hmm. if we know we're going to be racing in these conditions so that will at least help the body respond better in those conditions but you're right I mean it's going to be unpredictable to a degree and then we know even aside from that that there will be some other changes um, that we can't 100% prepare for. One thing I didn't ask you about pre-call Dina, but I think actually it might be quite useful to talk about here is what we do after the race, right? Now, I know a lot of people have been changed their nutrition. They've cut out alcohol. They've stopped eating chocolate and cakes. They've tried to get down to this race weight, but they've promised themselves 
that when they finish, they're going to have that huge big pizza. They're going to have a few beers. They're going to have the, they're going to eat cake all week, you know, to, to sort of satisfy all of those things that they're fond of. But, but most of that food, whilst, whilst it might fe- make us feel well, is, is what I call junk food particularly if consumed in large you know, quantities over a few days. And, and that brings a lot of inflammatory responses from the muscles. When your muscles are already inflamed anyway from 10 or 12 hours of competing. So what's the perfect post-race approach to, to nutrition? I'm, I'm not saying you don't have that pizza or you don't have that beer or that piece yeah. of cake. Perhaps just going on a, a week-long food fest is probably not the best option, particularly if you've got the consideration of other races later on in the year and you want to recover quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think hydration, rehydration is key. And because a lot of the foods you've mentioned are more, let's say, processed or carb heavy, we forget like we actually need some protein pretty quickly in. Um, and that really shouldn't be neglected in those first few days um, just to help that recovery process. So I think. Yeah, a lot of times that vision, like, oh, yay, I get to eat a week of ice cream. Um, for one, I mean, I, I find that most athletes don't feel good, just stomach upset from eating the gallon of ice cream. Uh, yeah. So, and then just like, well, I'm still sore five days later. Eh, that's maybe we didn't rehydrate very well in the beginning, those first couple days and the protein piece. Um, I mean, there are other things we can do with, you know, omega-3s and, um, you know, maybe some uh, other protocols as far as trying to prevent against post-race illness that can happen with, uh, you know, upper respiratory infections and things. So, but I would say the protein and hydration are the keys Mm -hmm. there and still like, okay, the, maybe not a whole week of (laughs) all those foods that you'd cut out. Let's just put in a few and enjoy those, uh, and, and not keep it too crazy. Yeah. I'm just thinking of those post-race parties, not perhaps on the night of the race. Um, but, but certainly, uh, 24 hours later, you go to the post-race party and then everyone goes to the pub or to the club and you're dancing until two o'clock and you're consuming lots of alcohol. I mean, you're probably still dehydrated then and that's just compounding the situation. And so it, it seems to me like the perfect strategy would be take care of all the things you need to do to enhance recovery, right? So make sure on, on the morning after the race, go and have a steak and some eggs. Yeah have a glass of champagne, but make sure you're drinking plenty of you know, water with it and, 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 and getting, getting the salt in as well. Continue that throughout the day. Indulge by all means on the night, uh, the pasta party or the, the post-race party and have some pizza and a couple of beers, but um, make sure you're doing all the things you should be doing for recovery. Don't just ignore those and doing all the things that you've just been dreaming of for six months. Yes. I mean, and there are the other considerations, like if we just sit all day or we have to hop on a plane, well, mm. you know, that's not going to help the the physical recovery that much either. So just, you know, the, I'm sure you have um, guidelines for your athletes too, in terms of stretching or other mobility work and just not sitting like a, you know, couch potato for that day or two after we have to loosen up and everything the, the uh we did the marathon de sable so that's in the sahara desert oh that's so, right so you can imagine how hot yeah. that is there the final yeah. day after seven days of being in the desert you know eating eating basic 
basic sort of, you know, freeze-dried rations, um, being dehydrated is to do a 10K race or a 10K, it turned out to be a 10K walk, but it's a three-hour walk across the sand dunes. You then get to the car park in the middle of the desert and you've got a six-hour bus journey back yeah. to the um, the organisation city. So you're all on a bus, you're sitting there, there's one stop for a little bit to eat and um, and a toilet stop. So you're effectively sitting there. Everybody's already got swollen feet and legs. It looked like everybody had elephantitis when they got off. Their their ankles yeah. and their knees and their feet were so swollen up. Um, and, of course, somebody got hold of a load of beers. So nobody was drinking water on the bus. Everybody <laughs> was drinking beers. You know, it was just – it's just the worst possible post-race yeah. um, uh, event you can think of, you know. Um, oh, um, yeah, and then, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, things not to do. Oh, that sounds painful in many ways. Is is there anything we've is there anything we've not talked about here, Dina? Uh, are there any special considerations that we should be making for any of the different types of events, or have we? Do you think we've covered everything? I mean, we've covered quite a bit. I think, I think one thing is just to mention for even newer athletes or or even experienced athletes in terms of the GI distress piece is that if you're having that issue which could be just you know bloating or cramping it doesn't have to be vomiting or diarrhea but any of those kinds of things it's not you don't have to live with that or just put up with it it's something we can target in training and figure that out in advance but I've just come across so many athletes that think it's part of it yeah to be like miserably bloated by the time we get to the run and and really there are ways to combat that or work with those strategies to figure that out um, so that race day can be pleasant or at least not miserable from the gut perspective so that's just one thing I wanted to add well I guess that if any of our listeners are having specific problems to themselves then they could always write to you Dina and um, engage you as their nutritionist to help them work through that couldn't they yeah I mean that's what a sports dietitian you know that's that's in our wheelhouse to figure that stuff out Um, not just like what are we eating and how much do we drink it's it's taking care of the whole body in training recovery and our day-to-day nutrition so that we're you know ready to go and optimize for race day. I think it's always worth pointing out here, Dina, is that we're human beings first and foremost. We have things that we like and things that we dislike. Um, We don't need to be um, monastic about this by denying ourselves some of the simple pleasures in life. So if if you like a nice glass of red wine, yeah, it's probably not the best thing to be drinking a glass of red wine every night. But I I still don't think it's necessary equally to deny yourself that pleasure for six to nine months before your race, um, thinking that that's going to make a huge difference on your performance. You know, we, we, we both know and we've both seen evidence that says that the best athletes are the ones that actually have the happiest existence as well. Um, I, so I think we've got to exist as human beings. We've got to also think it's not the race doesn't exist on its own. You know, if you, if, if you're, if you're going to follow this monastic diet for nine months, you're probably not going to get invited out to dinner with your friends um, because you'll be the one who's been really picky about what's on the menu. And 
we've also got to think about the long term. You know, we're not just doing an Outlaw and Ironman event. We've got to exist to next year. We've got to go back to work. We've got families to feed. So we need to try and find something sustainable and, and, and enables us to be in a nice sweet spot, haven't we, to, act, to, to be human beings that are training for a demanding event. Oh, I couldn't have said that any better, Simon. Well, well said. Well, that's part of the high-performance human thing we're doing now, Dina, is to try and try and think about the uh, the bigger picture rather than just the sort Beautiful. of, um, you know, this 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 event exists on its own. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up again. Thank you so much for sharing that. I um, will put all of your details, your Instagram and uh, um, Twitter and Facebook and your website um, and email address into the show notes. Uh, so that if the listeners want to follow you or, or get in touch and ask you some more specific questions, they can do that. Um, Sounds great, Simon. Any, any, anything else that we need to share with them? What what books have you been reading, Dina, recently? We'd I'd love to put something from you on the on on our um, continuing reading list that we're building. Mm-hmm. What, what's been in What's been inspiring you recently? Uh, and do you mean nutritionally or just 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 anything, anything that you've read? Well, I am reading uh, the book. Burn by um, Herman Ponzer talking ah, about yes, a tribe. You, yes, I've so that's fascinating. I've, I've not read it, but I've, that's come up in conversations. Yeah, but I don't think anyone's recommended it yet. So I'm I'm only about midway through, but it is very interesting talking about metab- human metabolism and uh, what we're learning. You know, we still have a lot to learn about our bodies, <laughs> but um, that's on on the reading list and. You know, I'm rereading uh, Tiny Habits by B.J. Fogg. Okay. Because, as you know, behavior behaviors and behavior design and, and habits and routines is all a part of uh, making us robust or helping us to achieve goals. So I think that's – and those are not very exciting, like – fiction reads right these are non-fiction books mm. but i i really enjoy these these two that i'm in right now yeah i'm reading atomic habits by uh, james clear so oh probably, excellent prob- probably coming at the same stuff from a slightly different angle yep yep great well excellent. um we've we've got a pdf that, that all listeners can access um with with all of these book recommendations i think we're up to about 80 to 90 books now so there's certainly a, a um a lot on there and i'll, I'll send you a copy as well dina with, awesome. with some other things to put onto that pile of and books Simon, that are building up yes i just wanted to thank you for all you do and for all of your great podcasts uh super inspirational and educational and helpful so thank you for for all the work you do well you're most welcome dina and that's much appreciated thank you So listeners, that's the end of another great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. As I say, if you've got any specific questions for Dina, we'll put her email address into the show notes. But for now, that's it for this week. See you again soon. Thanks. Thank you to Dina for joining me again on this week's High Performance Human podcast. You can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this show, please make sure you subscribe on iTunes or get the app for your mobile device. Oh, And please remember to leave a rating and review. Right, that's all for this week. We'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high-performance human in every aspect of your life.